Hello and welcome to Hugh's Joy of Food, a bite-sized podcast celebrating all that's amazing about everything edible, from the simplest snack to the fanciest feast. I'm Hugh Smithson-Wright, and this week on Hugh's Joy of Food, I'll be reviewing one of London's few truly legendary restaurants and one of my absolute favourites, the Wolseley, answering a listener's thorny culinary question in Ask Hugel, and singing the praises of the Blessed Virgin Mary in Treat of the Week. Each week on Hugh's Joy of Food, I review a restaurant in one way, shape or form. It might be a restaurant that I've actually been to recently, a home delivery, whether that's a ready-to-eat takeaway or a make-at-home meal kit, or occasionally a favourite place that has gone to the great restaurant graveyard in the sky, which I'll review from memory for nostalgia's sake. First, a disclaimer. My job as a restaurant PR and consultant means that I'm paid to promote the interests of the handful of restaurants that I represent. If I feature a client on this podcast, I'll make that clear, like I do on my social media channels. In all cases, I'll make it clear if all or any part of a meal I review was complimentary. In the case of this week's restaurant, while the Wolseley isn't a client, I have in the past undertaken some consultancy work for the restaurant group that owns it, Corbin and King. However, the meal I'm reviewing was fully paid for, with the exception of a glass of champagne each, which we were very kindly given on arrival. You can rest assured that anywhere I review, I recommend. This show is about the joy of food, so if you're looking for vicious eviscerations, this probably isn't the podcast for you. With that out of the way, it's time for this week's review. Whether it's your first time at the Wolseley or your hundredth, it's impossible to walk through the grand double doors off Piccadilly, opened for you by that day's charming doorman or woman, and not be impressed. The soaring ceilings, checkerboard marble floor and polished brass railings create what is without doubt one of the most opulent dining rooms in the country. While there are, if you look carefully, still clues to the building's former incarnations, as a bank and before that as the showroom for the luxury British car maker from which it takes its name, most people will only ever have known the Wolseley as the world-famous restaurant it's been for nearly 18 years. There are a few different seating areas. Some covet the central horseshoe as the spot to see and be seen in, but really... Whether you're sitting on the mezzanine overlooking the dining room, in one of the salons facing Piccadilly, or by the huge windows to one side overlooking the next-door neighbour the Ritz, there isn't a bad table in the place. Whether it's coincidence or very clever service that we're allocated not only the same table, but also the same waiter, a lovely Barney, as on our last visit, I don't know, but it gets things off to a very good start. The Wolseley is modelled on a European Grand Café, open all the way through from breakfast, for which it's so famous there's an entire book dedicated to it, to lunch, dinner and all points in between. As in a grand cafe, you can, in theory, order just one course, perhaps as a pit stop to shopping on nearby Bond Street or as the start to an evening at the theatre. But I guarantee that as soon as you look at the extensive menu, it will be less a question of what you do order than of what you can bear not to. Alongside soups and salads and hors d'oeuvres and entrees, there are luxurious crustacea and caviar, beautiful pastries and ice cream coupes, and a selection of cheeses and savouries. Many dishes are offered as a small or large portion, allowing you to tailor your order to your appetite, or have both of those dishes you can't decide between, one as your starter, one as your main course, rather than it having to be a case of either or. That's exactly what my husband does, choosing a small steak tartare for his starter and the large Wiener schnitzel as his main. 
The steak tartare at the Worsley really is superlative. Served with or without an egg yolk, Dave's preference is with, and judiciously spiced, it's brought to the table with extra Worcestershire sauce and Tabasco for you to add additional seasoning should you want. With its accompanying salad and a basket of the Worsley's wonderful baguette, it's almost a meal in itself. Ordinarily, I'd order the tartare myself too. It's one of my favourite things. But this time I'm tempted by a new dish, white onion soup with Stitchleton toast. I'm glad I choose this because it's sensational. The soup is rich and comforting, almost sweet, exactly what I need on a cold December night. And the blue cheese top toast served alongside it makes the perfect accompaniment. The Wiener schnitzel Dave's chosen as his main course comes simply adorned with a half lemon wrapped in muslin. To go with it, he orders some of the Wolseley's excellent chips, served rustling in paper in a gleaming steel cone and refreshing pickled cucumber. I'm not sure there's a dish more evocative of middle European grand cafes than Wiener schnitzel, so it's no surprise that it's something of a signature dish here. For me, there's only one choice of main course, the always superb calf's liver and bacon. Two generous tranches of liver, cooked pink, come topped with crispy bacon and fried sage. It's served with sauce robert, a sort of mustardy gravy, and a generous tangle of melted onions. I always order this, and as always, it's so, so satisfying, especially with a couple of stolen spoonfuls of Dave's pickled cucumber. One of many things I love about the Wolseley is that it offers a selection of savouries for afters, as well as desserts. Often I fancy something to end a meal that's cheesy, but isn't, well, a cheese board. My buck rarebit, a Welsh rarebit topped with a fried egg, is fabulous, but for a small serving, it's anything but. I wonder if I'll be able to finish it all. Heroically, I do. Dave has a sweeter tooth than me, so for him it's a coffee meal foy from the patisserie section. It's so beautifully and elegantly presented that it's almost too pretty to eat. But only almost. With water and service and a bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon, plus a couple of digestifs, we run up a bill of £180, which might sound expensive, but certainly doesn't feel like it for such a wonderful meal and evening. And as I've said, you could eat here for a great deal less by just coming for one course, or for coffee and cake instead of dinner. But if I were you, once it's possible to, I'd book yourself a table for lunch or dinner and treat yourself to the whole shebang. Dave and I came here for our first meal out after both of the last two lockdowns. At the time of this meal, I optimistically said on Instagram that I hoped there wouldn't be another one. How wrong I was. I know I'm not alone in having found this lockdown, with the miserable weather and short days especially challenging. But knowing that at the end of it, whenever that may be, there'll be calf's liver and bacon and a warm welcome waiting for me at the Wolseley, well that gives me just a little glimmer of hope. For all information, visit the Wolseley, that's T-H-E-W-O-L-S-E-L-E-Y dot com. Each week, I answer a listener's burning culinary question in Ask Hugel. This week's question comes from Simon in Peckham, who says, Hey Hugel, in normal times, one of my great pleasures is to go to the theatre by myself, often spontaneously when a bargain ticket becomes available at the last minute. Because I don't want to sit through the first act with my tummy rumbling, I like to make sure I eat first, but I keep getting turned away from restaurants when they see that it's just me. I often end up having to make do with lacklustre fast food, and what I'd really like is a proper sit-down meal. Is it me? Am I doing something wrong? And is there a secret to securing a pre-theatre table for one at somewhere I'd actually like to eat? Simon, what a great question. 
and solidarity, sister, because I too love dining by myself, whether that's pre or post theatre, for lunch when I'm out at meetings, or just on the spur of the moment when I spot someone new. Let me first deal with why a restaurant might turn away a lone diner, because I promise you, Simon, it's definitely nothing personal. Restaurants rely on always having a certain number of bums on a certain number of seats. With only so many tables available, giving one that would usually seat two or even at a push four to one person is something of a gamble for them, because unless that solo diner is going to go big on wine and tip like a Rockefeller, they're unlikely to spend more than a larger party that might come in while they're there would. There's also an element of computer says no at play here. While an experienced restaurant host will be able to rejig their seating plan in a second to accommodate a walk-in party of one, someone meeting, greeting and seating in a high-turnover restaurant might simply not have been trained to override a system that only allows them to accommodate even numbers. But these are all excuses, and while this might answer why you're not getting a table, it doesn't answer how to. Well, the simple answer to that is, you're going to the wrong restaurants. Truly great restaurants don't just accommodate solo diners, they actively relish having them. Anywhere with counter dining in particular will almost always have a single seat that needs filling and they'll be delighted to see you. I can think off the top of my head of half a dozen or more places in and around Theatreland where I always feel welcome as a lone diner. Brasseries Adele, Kiln, Bowsy Inn, Tonkotsu and Barafina in Soho. Scott's, Chaconis and my client Bellamy's in Mayfair, 45 German Street and Shoryu in St James's, and Colburn next to the Royal Court in Sloane Square all couldn't be more welcoming. For those occasions you describe where you only decide to go to the theatre at the last minute, ask on Twitter for recommendations near to where your show is. It's always a popular topic of conversation and you're much better off going somewhere someone recommends than taking a chance on someone you don't know in hospitably turning you away. I do get why some restaurants don't accept solo diners. Some places put money at the heart of what they do, where others put genuine hospitality. But Simon, it's their loss. And while they might not want you, the fact is, they don't deserve to have you. Seek out the places that love those of us who love to eat on our own, and it'll be curtains for your pre-theatre disappointment. If you'd like me to have a go at answering your food-related question, you can tweet me at hrwright or send me an email to hrw at hughrichardwright.com. For my final segment, Treat of the Week, each week I share something food or drink related that's been putting a smile on my face. This week, it's the Virgin Mary. No, I haven't gone over to Rome. I mean, of course, the vodkaless version of everyone's favourite hangover tipple, the Bloody Mary. I didn't do Dry January this year, but in the years where I have, and more generally when I'm having a break from booze, it's a Virgin Mary I turn to as the most enjoyable alternative to alcohol. But even when I'm off the wagon, I'm firmly of the view that the Virgin Mary is actually an improvement on the Bloody. Now, I know that many people will find it strange that I think a version of a vodka-based drink is better without the vodka, but hear me out. The value of the Bloody Mary is as a vehicle for getting alcohol into the body on a hangover without the shame of ordering hard liquor before lunchtime. 
It's a gateway drink, which supposedly allows you to stroke the hair of the dog that bit you without looking like a total lush. The problem is, unless you're making it yourself or have the cojones to ask for a quadruple, the amount of alcohol in a Bloody Mary is so meagre that as hairs of the dog go, it's like using homeopathy to treat an axe wound. If it's anti-meridian alcohol you need, just order it. I find a Virgin Mary with a martini on the side, or a nice large glass of 14% Malbec to be far more effective as a hangover remedy than a heavily diluted shot of vodka. No, it's the tomato juice part of the drink where the magic lies. A well-made Virgin Mary gives you a sharp, hot, salty, reviving slap around the face and a kick up the backside, which the addition of vodka does nothing to improve. But what is a well-made Virgin Mary? The secret is to start with really good, thick tomato juice. The best stuff is to be found in little glass bottles in Polish shops or the Polish section of the supermarket. And tons of ice. Tepid tomato juice might as well be pasta sauce. How you season your Virgin Mary is a matter of taste, but to my mind the absolute essentials are Worcestershire sauce, which for me has to be Lee and Perrin's, although I know a lot of people swear by Henderson's relish, which also happens to be vegan. Hot sauce. I like my Virgin Mary fiery, and I love to experiment with different hot sauces, of which I can never have too many. Good old Tabasco does the job and is reassuringly ubiquitous, but personally I love a smokier hot sauce like Peckham Smoker or Shedletsky's. Salt and pepper. Smoked salt and white pepper if you have them, but whatever you can lay your hands on is fine. And lemon or lime juice. Fresh by preference, but if a squirt of Jif is all you've got, that'll do. Horseradish, about a teaspoon, and ideally horseradish cream so you don't get bits in your teeth, is a nice addition if there's some handy. All Virgin Mary aficionados have their own secret ingredient that makes the drink theirs. Mine is a glug of fish sauce, which gives the drink an extra thwack of umami, which I find irresistible. A quick Twitter poll this week brought up some great suggestions, including Blitz Cucumber, which I can see would give a welcome-added freshness, Mustard as an alternative to horseradish. Pickle juice from a jar of pickled gherkins or chilies, And tagin, a spicy seasoning blend popular with bartenders, which I've ordered a big bottle of to try. One ingredient you might have noticed I've omitted to mention is celery, usually one of the first things you'd think of as an ingredient in a Virgin Mary. Picture one and you'll picture a celery stalk sticking up from the glass. Not for me. I have such a strong aversion to the taste of celery, it actually makes me heave, that I always make or order mine without what I think of as Satan's own vegetable anywhere near it. As ever, you do you. I know I'll probably never persuade most people that it's superior to the Bloody Mary, but I like a virgin. Just before I go... I'd like to ask that if you're in a position to, you'll consider supporting one of the many brilliant charities working tirelessly to ensure that children, disadvantaged families and the homeless don't go hungry during the pandemic, such as Magic Breakfast, Fair Share, Street Smart and the Trussell Trust. That's it for this week. If you'd like to get in touch, you can tweet me at hrwright or drop me a line at hrw at hughrichardwright.com and I hope you'll join me next time for more of Hugh's Joy of Food. (laughs) 